You're listening to Camayo's Compliance Talk by our in-house compliance expert, Michelle Camayo. Join Michelle on the latest developments, questions, and conversations surrounding employee benefit issues organizations are navigating today. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining today. I'm Michelle. I'm the compliance practice leader here at IMA. If this is your first time joining, I welcome you to the call. As most of you know, we'll spend the next 30 minutes together as I go over a few updates with you and then take questions and answers from the audience. Kamayo's Compliance Talk was created to be meaningful to our audience, and we want you to tune in each month to listen in on what's new and coming up. If you miss a monthly episode, you can search past episodes on our Apple Podcasts by going to your Apple Podcast app, typing in Kamayo's Compliance Talk, and you'll see all past episodes all the way from 2020. You can listen to those. So myself, Michelle Kamayo, and my entire compliance team, we're working with employers on a daily basis, having practical discussions with employers. We're not giving legal advice. And we want you to check in often for updates or new legislation impacting your group health plan. So the goal for this call is to help employers address and or solve compliance concerns and issues. Ask Michelle was created to answer questions most meaningful to you, our audience member. While I have you, I wanted to introduce you to our IMA compliance team. If you see on the right-hand side, we have two ERISA attorneys on staff, and then you see myself, Michelle Camayo. And there are changes coming for next month's webinar, so I wanted to give you a heads up. First, I'll be on camera, and second, Casey, listed on the slide here, you can see him about halfway down, Casey will be joining me next month and we will both be on camera, and that's starting in March. So be sure you tune in for March's episode. And here we go. So you know I like to start off with what I've been hearing in the past month from you, our employers, and we have some compliance chatter. During this time of year, it tends to be all about the Affordable Care Act reporting, so those 1094 and the 1095Cs. So just a reminder, I know we went over this last month, that all applicable large employers must e-file by April 1st. And you need to make sure that you distribute those 1095Cs to your full-time employees by March 1. We also have one of the new higher compliance notices has been updated. It's the Marketplace Exchange Coverage Model Notice and CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program Notice. So my practical advice here is that maybe it's a good time of the year to review what current notices and disclosures are in your new hire benefit guide and also just your new hire packet in general. And when you get a copy of these slides, you'll be able to click on these links to take you to the model notice. I like the Employee Benefits Participant Notices and Disclosures Guide that we have. It's really great. It tells you during what time of year or whether it's for new hires or existing employees. It gives you a list of all the notices and disclosures that must be made with regards to your employee benefits program. So when you have a copy of these slides, you can just click on that link. I'm also 
deep into the RxDC reporting, or you might have heard it called the CAA reporting or prescription drug reporting. It's all the same. It originated from CAA regulations, so that's why some vendors call it CAA reporting. But it's prescription drug data collection. This is round three. We wrote an article on this, and my takeaway for you is that you will probably have to take action in order for your carrier or your TPA or PBM to report on your behalf. So you need to look out for those emails. If you have a fully insured medical plan, look for the carrier survey and act before the deadline that is illustrated in that email. If you're self-insured, so you have a TPA and a PBM, then contact your TPA. I find that, that generally you start there. You contact your TPA, ask them what you need to do, if, if anything, and they will let you know. And they'll also let you know if they are coordinating with your PBM in order to report on some of those prescription drug data files. Again, RxDC reporting, it's a real thing. It's part of CAA 2021. Round three is coming up. And if you have a group health plan that, that covers prescription drugs, you will need to take action. If you're an IMA client, you have or you will soon receive an email from your account team letting you know what you need to do. So we'll keep you apprised of that and proactive communication there. Coming up for, for January 1 plan years, you must complete the CMS online form to report Medicare Part D credibility to CMS, and that's due March 1st. So that is coming up next week. Make sure you um, fill out that CMS online form. It really only takes about five minutes. They've shortened it in previous years, so it doesn't take long at all. It is something that you need to do if you have, of course, a January 1 plan year, which I know the majority of plans typically are January 1. I want to mention MAPIA compliance, so M-H-P-A-E-A, -E MAPIA is mental health parity. You can might hear it called that as well. And this is something, you're gonna hear more and more about this. So I wanted to give you my two minute take. Every now and then I'll release YouTube videos and we'll push them out to, to our listeners. Um, I did a two-minute take on MAPIA compliance on what employers need to do and be aware of, and that's on our IMA YouTube page. I do have a 15-minute version if you want to hang in there for 15 minutes worth of MAPIA compliance conversation. You can search our IMA YouTube page for that. In the news, Johnson & Johnson is in trouble for significantly overpaying for prescription drugs. I mean, they're facing a class action lawsuit and facing one, but, um, you know, that's a, it feels like a certainty at this point from what we're reading. I wanted to highlight it because there's something that we can all glean from this um, pending class action lawsuit, we'll call it. So what happened is Johnson & Johnson, you know, this very large company, um, they, had a, they have a specialty drug program and with regards to generics, it was found out that they were paying their PBM, so their pharmacy benefit manager, they were paying their PBM higher prices for generic drugs when they were available at lower costs. That's a problem. They're, they mismanaged that RX program, especially when it came to their mail order pharmacy, which was found to be more expensive than retail pharmacy on 
you know, a lot of the generic drugs. So they got in trouble for that and they are going to get in more and more trouble. That is a fiduciary duty breach. I mean, I just don't know what else to call that. And I think that's, that's fairly standard. We're all reading it and thinking it, all of us compliance experts. So my takeaway here is let's use that case as a reminder to our employers. So to you listening on the line, that if you're a plan sponsor, you're a fiduci- you have a fiduciary responsibility to act in the best interest of your plan participants. And you can't hide behind the knowledge that you didn't know. That doesn't fly. It, you have to know as the plan sponsor. It's your job to know and then your job to responsibly act in the best interest of the plan participants. So the J&J case is a, a highlight that the J&J benefits program was not acting in the best interest of their plan participants when the PBM started charging higher prices for generic drugs. So a lot of the times as well, when we talk about that, like you might say, well, it's the PBM, it's their fault, or it might be another vendor's fault. And that might be true. But the truth is also that many of these compliance obligations can't be handled by you as the employer alone. You do have to lean on vendors. So because you have to lean on these vendors, you need to include compliance responsibility analysis as a critical part of your vendor selection process because when you're self-insured, you can't just blame your TPA or your PBM or your other partners. You are seen as the responsible party if you're a plan sponsor. So that's why it's becoming more and more critical to include some sort of compliance analysis as part of your vendor selection process. I mean, it's your fiduciary duty, I would say, that including a compliance analysis is very, very important to do that. That's really the bottom line with that J&J case on what everyone can learn or, or how does it impact you, you might be wondering. It's It doesn't impact you, thankfully, I hope, but what it is, is just a reminder. Now, employers as fiduciaries have a responsibility to act in the best interest of plan participants. Someone asked, does the Medicare Part D credibility disclosure need to be reported, submitted by the employer? Yes, it is the employer's responsibility, and you're the plan sponsor. So when I say employer, really what we're also saying is plan sponsor. In some cases, employers aren't plan sponsors, and in that event, then you just lean on your plan sponsor. But in most cases, the employer is the plan sponsor. So yes, you do need to submit it. Um, it, it looks like you had asked not the broker. Correct. It's not the broker's responsibility. It is a five-minute survey, so potentially brokers may offer to do that for you, but it is very simple. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be worried about uh, clicking on that link and signing in. But don't automatically assume your broker is doing it because they, they won't be automatically doing that. That was my quick 10-minute update with regards to uh, what's going on in the world, our compliance chatter. So we'll go to questions and answers. And I'm going to read some questions that were already submitted throughout the month. If you have questions about anything I've just talked about or anything in general as it relates to your benefits program or um, maybe anything that kind of touches on your benefits program, feel free to submit those now and I'll monitor that. 
we always get a lot of questions about FSAs because FSA qualifying event rules and COBRA rules are a little bit different than the rest of your plans. So there can be a, a little bit more confusion than normal. The question that was asked of me is, what happens to a healthcare FSA account when an employee terminates employment? And my answer is, it depends on whether the account is underspent. If the account is underspent, that means there's money in there. There's money left in there from what the employee elected. So if the account is underspent, an offer of COBRA coverage must be made. So your COBRA vendor needs to know if they need to make an offer of COBRA coverage for the FSA. And contributions to the account after employment will be post-tax. So your question might be, well, then why would someone FSA a COBRA account if it's going to be post-tax dollars? And the answer is because that's what gives them access to those underspent funds that they've already contributed. That's the reason someone would want to COBRA an FSA account. If the FSA account, and I'm speaking about the healthcare FSA account, if the healthcare FSA account has no funds or is overspent, then COBRA is not offered. There's no benefit to offering COBRA to an FSA if there are no funds in there or if it's overspent, because again, it's just putting post-tax dollars into an account at that point, so COBRA is not required to be offered. But if the account is underspent, you do need to ensure that your COBRA TPA is including, COBRA, including the FSA as part of the COBRA election packet. With regards to that, I have a question that just came in. Does the FSA COBRA need to be set up in advance as part of the plan? I think you're asking logistically with your COBRA TPA, and the answer is yes. So every year, Generally, during open enrollment, you have to update your COBRA vendor with um, rates, you know, your new medical dental vision rates or your new plan. You have to give them all that new data. So FSA should be added to that list when you're setting up your, your COBRA TPA open enrollment or if you're setting up COBRA a COBRA TPA for the first time. Yes, it needs to be set up in advance because otherwise, if you go to your COBRA TPA and you say, oh, you need to offer FSA to this particular uh, part, or particular former employee, the COBRA vendors are going to say, what FSA? We didn't even know you had one. We didn't know it was supposed to be part of the COBRA election packet. So you set that up in advance. Yes. Oh, this is a great question. For California employers, can you confirm the deadline for administering 1095Cs to employees was January 31st? I, so this is California employer specifically. So California has an individual insurance mandate. Because of that, California needs to see all the 1095Cs so they can reconcile who had and who did not have health insurance and who should be penalized. California has its own deadline for 1095C distribution, which is listed as January 31st. But California also says that they will follow the federal deadline as well. So you don't have to, you won't be penalized for missing that January 31st date as long as you get it in before the IRS deadline. So um, it is January 31st in California, but they don't penalize for non-compliance because they recognize that having two different due dates for 1095Cs is difficult. So they give some lenience for employers there. 
And a question about the FSA. How does the FSA provider reconcile the account when COBRA is taken for FSA? I'm not sure I know what you mean by reconcile, so I'll kind of describe the process. To the FSA vendor, um, nothing has really changed, but when you, when you elect COBRA for FSA, it's not like medical, dental, or vision. You don't get to re-up after the plan year ends. There's no open enrollment. When you COBRA FSA, it's only for that particular plan year. So at the end of the FSA plan year, there's no option to renew COBRA or renew FSA as a COBRA participant. The, the plan just terminates and their access to the FSA terminates at the end of the FSA plan year. And that's all described in your FSA plan documents. And if it's not, your FSA vendor should have some material for you to distribute to a, a former employee when they're being offered COBRA. We have a question. We're kind of staying with the IRS here. Uh, my organization deducts medical, dental, and vision premiums pre-tax from employee paychecks. So that tells me that this employer is utilizing a Section 125, utilizing a, a portion or a part of Section 125 called the premium-only plan. And that's because premium only is being run pre-tax from the employee paycheck. And the question is, are we required to perform non-discrimination testing? And the answer is yes. In general, almost always, 99% of the time, yes. And that's regardless of your group size. I do meet with newer clients to go over compliance checklist requirements. And one of the things we talk about is non-discrimination testing. And there's some misunderstandings that, oh, I'm only this big, so I don't need to perform non-discrimination testing, or that's only for 401k. But both of those are really just, it's just misinformation. You do need to perform non-discrimination testing whenever you are taking pre-tax contributions for medical, dental, or vision. And of course, if you have an FSA, that's a big piece of a Section 125, so you have to perform non-discrimination testing then as well. And if you have an HRA, uh, you're performing non-discrimination testing for uh, what we call Section 105, which is self-funded plan. And if you're self-funded, of course, you're testing Section 105 and 125. So the answer is yes, regardless of your group size. If you're taking pre-tax contributions from employee paychecks or medical, dental, vision, FSA, HSA, anything under benefit programs, then you can always safely assume that you will need to perform non-discrimination testing that's required by the IRS. I have a question about a different topic that just came in. What resources are available for help with creating a workplace violence prevention plan for California employers? This one is, it's not, a, a, I can't really give a general answer. So my first question, my first suggestion is in this particular instance, I would contact, you know, your um, PNC broker and ask if they have someone who can help with that. Here in Cal here in our California market at IMA, we have Stephanie, who is our safety and wellness manager, and she gives our employers resources with regards to creating that, that prevention plan, that workplace violence prevention plan. It's fairly new, so a lot of data is coming out. Not every... Um, vendor has something quite yet because of how new it is, 
but we will have resources and your your broker, um, your PNC broker should as well. And if not, then what we do is we go to a more costly resource, which is an employment attorney in the state of California. And you probably know I like Fisher Phillips. So if you ever came to me and said, we want to work with an employment attorney to make sure that we have this all buttoned up, I would refer you to Fisher Phillips. One of the other questions that I got, we have an employee who wants to enroll their domestic partner. Are we only allowed to enroll domestic partners if they are registered with the state? So the question was posed to me, and the answer is not clear because, or it's not always the same for everyone, let me say that. So in order for me to be able to answer a question like that, I need to look at your plan document. But it really is because there's flexibility in how a health plan can define eligible dependents. And because of this, it's your plan materials should clearly define domestic partner eligibility. So I would say to you, what does your plan materials state is uh, constitutes a, an eligible domestic partner? Does it say that the domestic partner has to be registered? Does that say, is that printed anywhere in your plan material. I would ask you that question. And so what you would do is you'd go back and you'd look at your benefit guide, your plan document, your SPD, maybe your evidence of coverage, um, your EOC, maybe even your employee handbook if it's referenced there. And you want to look at the language. And then ensure all the language aligns. So if your plan document says something different than your benefit guide, that's a problem. You know, if you go to court, your plan document is generally going to be what the judge looks at, but the judge is always going to, mostly always going to, in, to rule in whatever is most favorable to the plan participant. So whatever is communicated in your benefit guide can also be just as important. The idea is that all of these plan materials, they need to align and you might need to do a quick audit, take about an hour and audit all of these different plan materials and ensure they state the same thing with regards to how you define domestic partners. Because in California, a lot of our carriers will allow a lot of flexibility. I mean, if someone could just say, hey, it's my domestic partner and they don't have to submit any proof and the carrier is okay with that when you're fully insured. And there are other employers who say, no, we want to be more strict than that. We want to make sure that they're registered with the state. And that's okay, too. Either one is okay. Because the law, with states that have the ability to register domestic partners, the law is only going to mandate registered domestic partner coverage. And you can be more generous than the law if... Uh, as long as you have it in, in writing in these plan materials. All right, looks like we're gonna finish up just in time. If you have any questions, feel free to submit now. Otherwise, we are going to wrap it up in just under 30 minutes. I'll leave you with a few resources. Again, if you want to sign up for the IMA newsletter, if you wanna be on our distribution list, you can go and subscribe to that. If you're an IMA or IMA bulk and client, Minerals are a good resource. I, I do some digging in there every week because I like to see what they have that can help our employers. And they have many, many different things with regards to paid sick leave charts, trainings for the employees, for the supervisors, sample forms, California new hire packets, uh, you know, Texas new hire packets. So they, they have a lot of tools there that 
that you may not know about. Fisher Phillips has an upcoming uh, virtual summit that I thought may be of interest to you. I'm not really advertising Fisher Phillips, but I do like you to know what's out there. Pay equity is, is being passed in, in several states and probably more and more as 2024 goes on. So you might find this of interest if you want to sign up. There's a link there for the Pay Equity Virtual Summit. They do have a cost for this one, uh, $300 per person, and it's on 229 or 35. And you would, this is all done through Fisher Phillips. I just want to make you aware that that's happening. That's it for me. Don't forget, throughout the month, you can email me and ask any questions you might have. You can do that ahead of each month's episode. I'm Michelle Camayo. I'm the National Compliance Practice Leader at IMA. You can email me at askmichelle at boltingco.com. And don't forget, next time we do this in March, I'll have Casey with me and we'll be on camera. And I hope to see you then. Thanks, everyone.